0: Um, So I started this line of work, for lack of a better word, on an early morning. I don't know, 20-something years ago, 20 years ago. And um, back then, the, the main challenge, at least when it comes to this text, was just how husbands and wives worked out with each other in their relationship and the problems they had. And certainly there was some, some absent fathers and, and some dads that kind of got drugged to church and let uh, you know their wives lead spiritually and they kind of didn't care much except for just to make her happy. They'd show up at church and um, that was kind of normal. And then probably before many of y'all's memory, I was in North Carolina, uh, no, I just moved to Atlanta and there was a major um, Dust up in North Carolina, where I where I had served before, and it was about a bathroom bill. This was like 15 years ago or so, 12, 15 years ago, a bathroom bill, and this had become so heated, like the NCAA tournament for basketball was going to get pulled out of North Carolina unless North Carolina recognized the right of people to use the bathroom of their choosing by their gender preference as opposed to their biological gender. Like this was the first big dust up in what is probably pretty normal to what most of y'all hear and run into today. That's like 12 to 15 years ago. So in no time at all, it's gone from like this thing uh, like that, that kind of made national attention to a religion, a radical orthodoxy, and, and people have their children taken away as to whether or not they will affirm their children's preferred gender versus what they've always known them to be. Um, That happens pretty frequently. It's a couple of cases in Canada now. There was just a major bill that um, it was going to be introduced into divorce proceedings, whether or not the parents, which parent affirmed or did not affirm their preferred gender identity. That's like a law in probably California, but I don't want to say that because it may be somewhere else. But... That was a law that just came out. You can introduce into your divorce filings and you must tell the court where you stand on, on your children. Like that's how radical it has gotten in 12 to 15 years, coming soon to a decision near you, coming soon to a workplace near you, coming soon to a campus near you, right? Look at the email headlines that come out of your organization's emails, right? And that's how far we've come. And it would be easy to stand up here and rail against that. And I think many of you would agree with me. Some of you might wrestle with that and rail against that. But I don't believe that's where the battle was lost. I believe the battle was lost when the church abdicated its responsibility to train men and women to embrace God's beautiful and glorious design for them, for the families they're a part of, for the churches they're a part of, to display that and raise people in that. And so we have rampant fatherlessness that has multiplied across the nation. And I believe that is probably one of the biggest pillars that has been taken out of children's lives to help them build a life on that allows all these other things to fall through and sort through. It's like, you know, connect four when the thing fills up and you've got to let it out, right? I believe the biggest thing that has happened in America is not what happened out in culture, but it's when we began to abdicate our roles as fathers who were engaged and spiritual and godly and in our child's life and at home, we switched that thing to the side and so many other things on top of that just fell out. And so I'm not willing to give up God's design that is clear in scripture for men and women, I'm not willing to give that up because we've left it. I'm not willing to give that up because a culture's left it. Because I believe God's design is always good and always right and always best, and your life will be the richest it can be on this side of heaven if you walk his ways and not your ways, and his ways and not cultural movements that want to pull you into their ways. And so can be a challenging topic today but I want to give you my best scriptural understanding of it because I want us to be a church that engages young men and says we expect you to grow up we expect you to embrace responsibility. We expect you to take care of yourself and then look to take care of a job. We expect you to take care of yourself and a job and at some point a young lady. And we expect you to take care of a family and we expect you to, to be people in a church that are that grow into fully mature men that your family and, and the church you're a part of and your workplace can say, there's an example of imperfectly what this is supposed to be like. And so that's what we're going to be here that's what we're going to offer here that's what we're going to challenge you to and look you in the eye to to live up to here and so let's unpack it we'll be in genesis 1 genesis 2 genesis 3 and first timothy 2 that i had hoped to get through last week and avoid all of this but god had other plans for us so you get to be part of it um So again, last week we were dealing with 1 Timothy 2, the second part of the chapter. And uh, what's going on there is it seems like the false teachers' practices has started to create disruption in the church. And that disruption in the church was harming the gospel witness outside of the church. And that disruption within the church was distracting people from the glory of Christ that they've gathered around to the fighting and the issues and the pageantry and the appearances of, of the people that were there instead. And so we're not looking at Jesus when we gather and we're not showing Jesus to an outside world and Paul's like, we're gonna fix this. This is, this is the things to address, right? And that last piece is what we're gonna be looking at today. And so is it sensitive? Yes. Is it challenging? Yes. Does it rub against us? Yes. So what I'm gonna ask is like, listen for, I wanna say 30 minutes-ish and at the end of it, you just put your heart before the Lord and, and anything that's rumbling within that, you just put your heart before the Lord and you have a conversation with the, the Lord about it, okay? And, and then you just, so you, you commit to listening, you commit to hearing all of it and then you just put it before the Lord and you see what he has for you and what he's pressing on in you and what he's pushing in you to apply. And so um, a couple of arguments against what we call the complementarian view, that is men and women complement each other they're made equal and different in order to fit together well and complement each other well. So a few arguments against that that you will run into, these are the three most common. One, they will take passages like 1 Timothy 2 and Genesis 1 through 3, and they will say those are cultural. Okay, so number one argument is cultural, 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 cultural. All right, so here is why that is not a proper, respo- or not a proper evaluation. In the passages that we study, you want to look for what reasons does the author give for the perspective that they're sharing, for the command that they're sharing? What reason does Paul give in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Something called creation. Before things went awry, before things fell apart, before things were a problem, God's created ideal and design is the reason for the instruction he's giving. Uh, same thing in 1st uh, Timothy 11 is another one I mean I'm sorry 1st Corinthians 11 is another one do you want to know how he grounds his argument the head of, of Christ is God the eternal trinity's relationship to each other is the model that is placed on human relationships within the home and within the church so you can't really say it's cultural if the eternal God had functions this way and so cultural no it's not Now, there are things that are cultural within those, and you can kind of tell them. Universal principle, you know, application for a church. You can tell the difference, and we'll go into those as we hit them. Um, Second argument against it, it doesn't really mean that. So, Scripture says something, and through some kind of, of interpretive twisting, interpretive distortion. We just say, well, that passage doesn't really mean what it says. And so in the passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 2, exercise authority. Well, it doesn't mean that. It means usurp authority. And so it it means people that are just taking authority wrongfully and in the wrong ways, but you can really, a congregation could give this authority and it wouldn't be usurping. Uh, A pastor could give this authority and it wouldn't be usurping but that's not the word that is used that's not the best uh, translation of that word nor does it explain the context of the passage so you twist scripture a little bit to try to get it to not say what it's saying that's pretty clear and even the people that are opponents of it they think it's pretty clear because they don't like it right last one the, the last one is they overemphasize the idea of mutual submission. So in Ephesians 5, it does say, submit yourselves one another out of reverence for Christ. And you should. So how do we govern the family structure? And, and how do we think about submission and leadership and authority? We've committed ourselves to humble, mutual love and care and support for each other. That governs relationships. And then within a relationship, submission and authority is worked out, out of this heart of humility and care and love for each other, right? But, but instead, they wanna erase that and just say, it's mutual submission. They don't mean there is submission within the family structure. Um, another passage, Galatians three, they wanna overemphasize this, right? There's neither male nor female, right? There's June or Greek, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, free, male or female, all are one in Christ so true. Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Men, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Women, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Slaves, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Free, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Jews, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. Greeks and anybody else you can think of. There's no category of humanity that Jesus didn't die for. Doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today. And so those are the three main arguments and, and papers and books get written on this so if you want to look more you can I'm just giving you kind of the bird's eye view so we can get into this now male and female he created them now I don't think that's probably a shocking statement to most of y'all it is from the scriptures by the way never probably dreamed in my mind in my lifetime that it would be controversial at all to say something like this but here's what the bible says on the topic Male and female, he created them. It is God's good creation and God's good design to represent himself in the world through two genders. Let's pray together, then we'll jump into the point. So Father, I pray for our hearts to be humbled. I pray for my words to be gracious and true and clear. But I also pray they would be courageous, Lord, that we wouldn't shrink back from telling the whole counsel of God, because in culture it's not as favored. I pray, Father, that, that you would work among young men to make them men. I pray you'd work among young women to make them women and to love that. To love that. I pray you'd take us that are older and make us more of the men we're meant to be and more of the women we're meant to be and more of the husbands we're meant to be and more of the wives we're meant to be and more of the followers of Jesus we're meant to be pray you would never ever stop growing us and i pray that in jesus name amen so the first kind of piece of this i want to work out a framework of biblical manhood and womanhood through genesis one two and three and then i want to apply it because that's what first timothy does in chapter two you'll notice genesis one two and three show up and so i want to apply it then to that particular case of that and so point one men and women are equal image bearers genesis chapter one Men and women are equal image bearers, Genesis chapter one. Now, I don't know how many of y'all had this experiment in social studies, but they still do it today. And so some of you certainly have. So in social studies class, they give you the lifeboat experiment. And what that is, is your ship is sinking and you alone have the authority to determine who gets on the lifeboat because there's only like five spots on the lifeboat. And so who are you going to let go? And then they give you categories of people like there's doctors on the, lifeboat, on the boat, there's nurse, you know, there's, a, there's an engineer, there, there's a, a garbage collector, there's an unemployed guy, like whatever they're trying to get you to think through. It's like you've got to determine which five of these people on the ship survive and get on the lifeboat. And I'm sure there's some soci studies reason for that. I don't know exactly what it's trying to do. But when it was invented, here's what it's trying to do. It's trying to get you to evaluate human life based on the value that they contribute through their work. And that's not the way God defines value. God doesn't define value by your education level. And God doesn't define value by the work you can produce. God doesn't look at human beings and think, how productive can they be? More valuable. How much education do they have? More valuable. How menial is their job? Less valuable. But you don't have a way of thinking about people that doesn't involve some amount of what activity do they do? What do they produce with their life? How productive are they? We even have measurements in the economy our productivity numbers, how much more work is coming out of the human beings that are employed than the ones, uh, than, than was happening a quarter ago. And God values human life by a whole different standard. Your value is intrinsic, meaning your value is placed inside of you and it's essential to you. Every human life is equally valuable to God. And anything that would make you think, like, that life isn't valuable anymore. They're they're old, and and in a nursing home, maybe we should just make some decisions is is a, a godless view of the human being that is sitting there with dementia or Alzheimer's or a physical limitation. Well, they're too young, or they're handicapped, or they're unborn. They're just not as valuable as the life they might be taking, the resources they might be taking. God values human beings intrinsically because they are made in His image. And why does that apply to today? I did not mean to talk about that long. Why does that apply today? Because when we talk about manhood and womanhood, it's not the roles they take on, it's not the activity they can do. Like what makes us equal isn't that we can lift as many weights as each other and do the same jobs as each other and even though a lot of times we can, that's not what makes us equal. What makes us valuable and what makes us equal is that we are equally made in the image of our creator to display what he is like in the world. Genesis chapter one, let me read Verse 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let, us have, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female. He created them. Then look what he says to both of them, and he blessed them, and and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the heavens and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, boiling this down quickly and simply. Men and women are equally created in the image of God. They bear the worth and the dignity and the value of expressing what God is like. The image of God means everywhere there is a human being, there is a display of here's what God is like. And so our original design was that we glorify God with our life, that we fill the earth up with representations of the glory of God. Like, look, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. That's why he says, fill the earth Fill the earth with my image. Fill the earth with a display of my likeness. Set statues that the king rules here and his rule is like this everywhere on the planet. Male and female, it requires to do that. Do you see that? Like it's so different than any other part of Genesis chapter one. God sets aside a council of the Trinity itself to say, let's do something different with man and woman. And when God decides to represent himself on the earth, he cannot fully represent his image by just having men running around. He can only represent himself fully, his nature fully, glorify himself fully by two equal complementary genders. And the creation mandate and the creation blessing is be fruitful and multiply. Men can't be fruitful and multiply alone. Women can't be fruitful and multiply alone. And there's another way they're equal in the text. They're equal in the purposes of God for the world. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and rule it. Meaning humankind is meant to subdue the creation to make it useful for human flourishing. And God says that purpose can only be accomplished united with men and women in chapter two in families. It cannot be accomplished uh, without that. And so we're equal in the image of God. We're equal in the purpose of bringing the, the creation into usefulness for people. We're equal in our, our value and, and worth when it, when it comes to, to that. There's an equal participation in that. And so one more key word, we're equal and we're interdependent. It is not, we are not designed to function in isolation independently. We're not designed to be independent of relationships. We're not designed to be independent of a community. We're not designed in the New Testament independent of the church community. And we're not designed to live in our marriages as two separate independent people. I will not depend on him for anything. I'm my own person. I will not depend on her for anything. I'm my own person then don't get married, because when you get married to someone, you are risking and sacrificing a piece of yourself to say, I'm going to place my life in a dependence on this person, being who we've committed to being, going in the direction we've committed to going. I'm going to to risk by putting a dependence of a part of my life and well-being on another human being, and she's going to do the same thing. And your marriage will not be anything that God designed it to be. And it will not be flourishing. You're not going to enjoy your marriage as long as you protect yourself and keep yourself separate. You're only going to find flourishing in your marriage when it's like, yeah, I'm going to just jump in the deep end. And like, you've got me and my well-being is is you kind of imperfectly living your way. And and I'm going to take your well-being on myself too. That's the only way your marriage will be fruitful and enjoyable and, and, and something you want to live in. Equal and interdependent for the accomplishment of God's purposes. One more way we're equal is the one we started with that's actually kind of the critique of the other side. Before the cross of Christ, there is neither slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek, nor barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, or man, or woman. Before the cross of Christ, we are all equal. And the blood of Jesus is as welcoming to men as it is to women. The need for Jesus is as equal among men as it is among women. We are equal in our creation design in the image of God. We are equal in the creation mandate, the purpose of God as we unite together. We're equal in redemption. That is God's design. Second piece. Men and women are given distinct roles in the home and church. Men and women are given distinct roles in the home and in the church. We have bought into the notion and the lie that equal means identical. Now we've bought into that in every area of culture, like equal and identical. And, and one of the main ways we get mad at the rich is it's, it's not identical. They have stuff I don't have, right? Well, equal and identical are not the same thing. And so the only way we can be equal is if I start at the same place, have the same privileges, um, have the same job, can do the same stuff as you. I mean, the only way we can be equal is if everything's the exact same. and. Maybe you found out in this life there is no such thing as everything being the exact same. The person sitting next to you had a different family from you, different upbringing from you. Maybe their parents are rich and yours weren't. Maybe, the, maybe their parents paid for all of their school and your parents kind of helped the best they could. Maybe they had two parents. Maybe you had one parent. Like, there is no such thing as identical. The person sitting next to you may be way smarter than you. What are we gonna do about that? Like zap part of their brain away to make sure they're equally as smart as you? Right, there is no such thing as identical. Equal and identical are not the same thing, you know. Go on. So, uh, let's start in Genesis chapter two. He zooms in on the, the sixth day of creation. All right. let, let me, ex- he, he's like telling us, let me explain to you how this man and woman created in my image worked out and how I did that thing. And he begins and he forms man of the dust of the earth, body, <laughs> Breathes into him his spirit, the breath of life. He becomes a living soul being that's different than anything else. And for the first time in all of creation, something is not good. If you've been to one of my wedding ceremonies, this this is one of the texts I pull out from. It is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for him to be in isolation without a partner and a companion that is equally suited to him. And so that's what God does. I will make him a helper. Now, helper means someone that assists, supports, in carrying out a purpose. And so, at the original design, there was man, creation mandate, fulfill, fill the earth, subdue it, bring it into subjection. And there was a partner in that who assisted and served to make sure the united purposes of God were accomplished. And she was going to be called woman. But she's a helper that's fit or suitable or compatible She's not like anything else in creation and he goes through naming the animals. None of the animals are suitable or fit because none of the animals are compatible. None of the animals are equivalent to the man. And so as God created body out of dust and breathed spirit to do woman, he did it a different way. He puts Adam to sleep. He takes Adam's rib out. Adam's rib, not all men's ribs. That's one of my science teachers in high school kind of tried to get me on that one Okay, only Adam's rib got taken. Like not all Women from now on are not made by taking men's ribs. That was a one-time deal, right? That makes sense to you? And he forms a woman. And there's this bursting, the first poem of scripture happens when the man and the woman meet each other. And they are married and launched into the purposes of God. Right? So a couple of definitions are on the back. I just want to give you these quickly. These are from Piper and Grudem in a book called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It was written about 40 years ago when this thing was first starting and man, it's changed a lot since then, but not for the better. All right, so at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. I think one of the main pushbacks and challenges that we have to the idea of leadership and submission is we've seen it abused so many times. We've seen a leadership abuse their authority and abuse their power, not function in a way that represents Christ. And so the way we view leadership is leaders get all the privileges. Meaning, I'm gonna sit at home on game day, I'm gonna kick my feet up on the coffee table, and I'm just gonna ring a bell every time I need a drink. And then you know what? I need some cheese dip. And that's the way we view it. And unfortunately, some of you act that way. But that's not it. Look at it, benevolent responsibility. Biblical, godly leadership is always a responsibility for the best well-being of the people under my leadership. Biblical leadership and authority is always, godly leadership is always a responsibility I take for the well-being of the people that I'm responsible for. And so it's a benevolent responsibility to lead. And so this is the challenge for us as men. This is the challenge for you as a young man, right? That, that you take responsibility for you. You don't push it off. You don't shirk it. You don't throw it on your parents as long as you possibly can. You embrace responsibility. Don't try to keep it away. And so we, we want to challenge you as young men. And this is from Jordan Peterson. He's lost Clean your room. Keep your room straight. Why would you go out and think you should have any voice in the world when you can't get your junk straight? I can't clean up my underwear off the floor, but I should be telling you people how to live. Now, I do the best I can to clean my underwear up and all that Take responsibility for your environment. Take responsibility for your hygiene. Take responsibility for your spiritual growth that you're engaged and purposeful about becoming the man God wants you to be. And when you do that, you'll find, man, there's probably a workplace. I want to take some responsibility here. I want to show myself faithful here. And then maybe you're involved in a church maybe you're involved in a campus ministry or a, a sports ministry. I want some responsibility here. I'm a man. I want to make a difference here. I'm going to embrace something here. I'm going to take some responsibility for something beyond me here. And then you're going to see some young woman and all of a sudden there is no other girl in the world. And there is no other person on the planet so beautiful as this young lady that is sitting across from you in a Bible study or at church, because that's the best place to find somebody godly, and there's just no one like her. And you're responsible enough for you that you would dare ask this young woman out because you may have to be responsible for her one day. Why on earth? You can't pick up your underwear, but you're going to go date some girl? You can't hold down a job, but you think you're going to be a provider for somebody someday? No, you, you, you start embracing your manhood. And then you're like, I'm the kind of guy that's headed in the direction of the Lord. And I want to invite you into a dating relationship. And here's how you do it. You look her in the eyes. You don't text her some vague text about maybe hanging out sometime. Like be a man and look her in the eyes. And don't just say, I want to pre-talk talk to you. And snap you for a while. And then if we snap enough, we'll be talking. And then if we snap long enough, we'll kind of fall into this thing called dating. Like be a man and look her in the eyes and say, would you like to go out with me to this place at this time? And then you ask her and she says, yes, it's a miracle. <laughs> and, and she says, yes. And you go out with her and pay for that meal. Nothing you got to pay all the time, but man, don't ask her on a date. If you can't buy her first dinner for her, buy that dinner for her. And then as it progresses, you initiate conversations about where you see things going. And if she sees it the same way, that's great. But you're taking leadership and initiative. You're saying, I'm responsible for me. I'm the kind of guy that can be responsible for you too. And then you ask him to marry you. And you start this family and you start growing together. And you you take initiative for communication and problem solving. And then you're ready to like, we're going to be responsible for some little lives someday. So let's... We're ready for that now. Wherever you are on that step, on that process, is take responsibility for you and seek responsibility for more and more people at work and church and home. Because that's part of filling up your world, subduing your world. And then if God blesses you with a woman beside you that will do that with you, then like together we now have this purpose of pressing God's purposes into the world together. That's what it looks like to be a man. Lead that kind of leadership. Provide. I would say, without going into it too much, men and women can both work, nothing to do with that. Proverbs 31 woman is like running circles around me. She buys wholesale fabric. She turns them into something. She sends them to the merchants and sells them. She makes an investment in a field and makes so much money off that. When she sells it, she starts another business. Nothing to do about that. Who is going to take on their shoulders the weight and the stress of financial provision? When the chips are down, who's going who's to pick them up? I think that's what it means to be a provider. It means for me, because you know I have a credit card, I have access to our bank accounts, I could go buy a $1,000 AR that I have had my eye on for like eight years. But does that set my family up for its financial goals to to the degree I control them, right? I don't control the world, I control my input. Does it set my family up for success financially to make this decision? I could buy a new car. Does it set my family up financially for the future that God has for us? Or does it better to drive a 13-year-old car with 180,000 miles on it? I'm going to make my decisions, not on a whim, not by myself, not without consultation to my wife. I'm going to make my decisions. What sets the family I'm responsible for up for the success that I control? Women. Meet a man like that. Demand men be like that. We always talk about this in premarital counseling, which may be too late. You've got to decide, is this the kind of guy going in the direction you want to spend your life going in? Spiritually. Work life or school life, if that's the work they're doing at the time. Is this the kind of guy I want to hitch my wagon to and follow for life? Is he headed somewhere that I want to go? And if he's not, I don't care how cute he is. I don't care how great his personality is. I don't care how ripped or any of that if he is not headed in the direction you want your life to head with Christ, then don't go. Because you are committing to, and at the heart of mature femininity is the freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to your differing relationships. Is this a guy that you want to affirm and encourage and follow for the rest of your life? That's a question. Now, remember... Like he's in training, 20, 22, 24, 28-year-old guys haven't got it all figured out, neither do 47-year-olds. And so you're talking about trajectory here. But is the trajectory looking like it's headed in, in the right direction? If so, then what do you do as you enter into a deeper and deeper relationship with them? How can I cheerlead him becoming the best man of God and the best leader that he can possibly be? And I'm telling you, I have seen men far exceed their abilities because there was a woman behind him helping and supporting and affirming him. And I've seen men whose ministries absolutely collapsed because they had women who would not support and would not nurture. And they, I told you, sowed him to death till he became this shriveled little person who would never take a step of initiative anywhere. And you remember that. Like, if I don't affirm and nurture the best of this person... I'm gonna shrink him down to somebody that doesn't do anything, step anywhere, take any initiative, and I promise you, that's not who you wanna live with forever. You don't want to live with somebody that won't initiate and won't lead, even if it's imperfect. And so, one more statement for men, then we're going on. Men, you are absolutely foolish. Husbands, this is, this is husbands now. You're absolutely foolish. If you do not take the nearest counselor in your life deeply into your decision-making process and weigh her opinion very heavily on all the decisions that you make, Like you are a foolish, foolish guy if you just run off and make decisions without your wife. You're a foolish, foolish guy if if your wife's like, nah, I don't know about that. I think we should go, mm," and you're like, "Uh uh-uh. And you just run off in your own direction over and over and over again and just dismiss any counsel or don't seek any partnership and counsel from your spouse. You're gonna blow this thing a lot and she's gonna have a lot of opportunities to practice patience and affirming an idiot for keeping on doing idiot stuff. Just, we're meant to be a partnership where there's not really this felt weight of authority and felt weight of submission. We're meant to be in a partnership that's heading in the direction of the purposes of God for us. And, and the number of times that I've actually had to say, "Well, I mean, the buck stops with me. We got to make a decision. This is what we're doing." Is like, it wouldn't be a handful. Been married twenty five years. Your partners together. And there's no one with a better vested interest in y'all thriving than the person you're married to. So why would you run apart from the person you're married to into every little decision there is to be made? The fall turns partnership into power struggle. The fall turns partnership into power struggle. Genesis chapter 3, you notice the creation order is reversed. God, man, woman, creation. Creation. Creation in the form of a serpent talks to woman. Woman eats and offers to the man. Man and woman do not listen to the word of God. They place themselves over the authority of God. And that's the biggest problem of Genesis chapter three is they're reversing the order. And what happens when you reverse the order? You plunge the world into the fall. You plunge your marriage. You plunge those that are affected by you. You plunge things into more brokenness when you reverse the design of God in any area, not just this one, but in any area. And that's what they do. And don't blame the woman now, guys. If you read the verses, they're not up there. In Genesis chapter three, the woman saw it was delightful. She ate, and what did she do? She gave it to her husband who was with her. He's supposed to lead while he watches his woman talking to a snake, which is a bad idea to begin with, but she's talking to a snake. And he just watches her listen to him questioning the word, questioning the word, questioning the word. Does it really mean? Does it really say? And he's just like, ah, I wonder how this is going to work out. But how many of us are sitting in our homes with our feet propped up? Ah, I wonder how it's going to work out for the kids. I wonder how it's going to work out for my wife to make that decision. I wonder how it's going to work out for my family. Click, click. Click, click. The same failure of the garden is the same failure we're living with over and over and over in our families and in our lives. But a verse I'll draw your attention to that blows this whole thing up. You will have pain. Like God's giving the curses to each one. Eve says, I was deceived. And God gives her, her consequences. You'll have pain and childbearing. The thing that only you can do One of your purposes in the creation mandate will cause pain and heartache and frustration forever. And your desire will be for him. And he'll rule over you. What used to be a partnership running in the purposes of God to represent God in the world and bring a part of the world into submission and usefulness to the Lord, to the glory of the Lord, now becomes we're going to fight with each other for who's in charge. And the first gender war starts right there. Her desire for him means she'll want his spot. She'll want to take his role. And in response, what will he do? No longer be a loving servant for the good of his family. He'll be a harsh dictator who will try to push her down. And you see this play out. What should be this becomes harsh and dictatorial, and I'm just going to command, 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 command. If you're living that way, you don't have a a, a private that you live with. You have a wife who's a human being and soul and representing God and like. So, you find that or you find men that check out and they neglect their responsibilities and there's no initiative and they live passive lives. And then for women, you have women who want to assert and fight or women who become very overly docile and just like this fake version of submission. And neither of them are biblical and no culture you've ever lived in is biblical. There's more and less biblical, but none of them are biblical. Only the work of Jesus Christ, Genesis 3:15. Someday you will give birth to a child, an offspring. This is generations later, Eve. And this child, the first gospel happens here. This child will crush the head of the serpent. He'll undo everything the serpent just did. He'll redeem what was broken. He'll put back what was broken. And so the great hope of Genesis. There's going to be this struggle, but there'll be redemption too. And part of the redemption of Jesus Christ is he undoes this war and unites it back to the purpose of glorifying God and filling earth with those who would represent him as true redeemed image bearers so that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language would worship the Lord and fulfill their purposes before him for the rest of their life. That's what redemption does, that's what it's meant to do in the family and in relationships. But for now, there's struggle. There's struggle and redemption. There's struggle, but now in Jesus Christ, we can struggle to picture what we should picture again. There's a struggle to do it God's way to represent God again instead of completely our way. But there is a struggle. And so men... Grab hold of responsibility, and when you've mastered that, grab hold of it a little more. Own it, initiate it. Ladies, especially if you're not married, you look at the d- direction of this guy's life, and do you want to go that way? Not for six months and not for a year. Do you want to spend your life and your kids' lives going the direction that guy's going? Because you will. You will. And then there's one last step. I'd love to talk more, but you guys want to get out of here and I know there's not much time. That's okay. We've answered most of the questions of of 1 Timothy. Women, cultivate a love for a God-given value and role. Cultivate a love for your God-given value and role, not cultural expectations. Women, cultivate a love for your God-given value and role, not cultural expectations. I think I have a graph up there I can go through really, really quickly. It won't take a lot of time, hopefully. So, God is the ultimate authority over all things. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's some artwork right there. That's technical skill. God is the ultimate authority over every atom of all of creation. But to rule his world and subdue it and to bring it into the way it's supposed to function, he gives a portion of his authority into three institutions. They overlap each other. They balance each other. They protect one against the other from abuse. And so we have the government. The government is a rightful authority, whether you like them or not, voted for them or not, doesn't give a rip, and God doesn't give a rip. You still have a posture towards them, and they are to protect their citizens and create an environment of safety and flourishing. It's the government's role. They distribute, or they have authority. They wield the authority of the sword, of the military, uh, of consequences, of of economic system. They they wield authority over oversight of all those areas to accomplish the well-being of their people. A lot of them don't do a good job of that, but that's what they're for. You have the church. We are a prophetic voice that speaks against the sin and immorality of the politicians and of the political system. We don't... Hitch ourselves to a political party. We speak prophetically against the evils that are in our government. That's part of our role. And it is our job to protect and to form spiritually the people under our care. That's our job. Protect and provide spiritually to form people into Christ under our care. And then under that, there's a family. And the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And there is a husband and a wife role within that family. I already went through that part of it. If you abuse your wife, I will delight to go with her to the police. I'll recommend she goes to the police and I would delight to file a report with her to make sure the full consequences of the government against your abuse are brought on you and there's a documented paper trail of your failure and you live under the full consequences of the law. That's something I would be... Not happy to do because you did it, but I'd be happy to support her to make sure that happens. That's our part of our role. The government has a balance against the criminal abuses within a marriage. The church has authority over the sin abuses within your marriage. If you persistently sin against your wife or husband, but if you persistently sin in your marriage then we will gladly partner with the offended spouse to walk into your life, to call you to repentance. And if you don't repent, we would go to the extent of our authority to discipline you from this church. How sinful would it be if I said, wife, submit to your husbands. But you don't understand, they're abusing that and and exerting that in such abusive ways over and over. They're not hitting me or anything, but they're sinning against me and sinning against me. I'm like, "Uh, submit, submit. I'm sorry, don't call me. No, call me. He doesn't have a right to tell you not to call us. And as a church, we will exercise our authority to balance, to walk into their life and call them to repentance to the extent we can do that. This is the way God set up his world. Okay, in the passage, let's go. Women, or wives, um, now I've lost my place, here we go. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. You know what's radical about that verse? That women get to learn. See, in the ancient world, there was zero value placed on women learning anything. And in fact, it was, it was uh, frowned against. And so, what does the Bible want? Teach women the word. Teach women doctrine. And quietly, with all submissiveness, and then at the end, let them learn quietly, does not mean women can't speak in the gathered church. Right? If you were to look at 1 Corinthians 11, there's conditions like they can pray this way. They can speak this way. It's not a prohibition against speaking. It's talking about the demeanor or the posture that is taken, which would be valuable for everyone, but a submissive, gentle posture. So in the church at Ephesus, there was this asserting posture against the leadership. We're going to push and, and fight and, and try to push ourselves up here. And they were also doing it to their husbands. We were going to. Put and assert ourselves over our husbands in the church. And that was the problem. And so Paul is speaking to that. And he's saying, check your heart posture. Are you looking to learn with humility the word and the doctrine? Or are you looking to assert yourself in the gathering? Right? So that was the, that was the main problem. It's not quiet, don't talk. It's quiet. Is your heart humble and receptive? But then it does say... And this is one of those clear statements that you would really have to twist to, to get around. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So, where? As the church is together. And what is the teaching? The authoritative word of God, the gospel. That's what teaching is throughout the pastoral epistles. And then that second part, exercise authority over men and so here's the simplest way that this unpacks of all the big mission of God there is for us to accomplish in the entire world there is a limited role that God reserves for men he reserves the role of elder deacon and teacher of men to men now when you get outside the home things can be a lot more flexible and formal Amy and I will disciple young men we will disciple young women we will both speak and engage in that in the church proper, we don't have elders, deacons, or teachers of men that are, are women. That's what it's saying there. And so, I'm trying to think how to reduce words so that we can finish, but also not skip over the topic. I, I don't ever want to apologize for Scripture. And so, hopefully, this has been as direct as I can give it. I'm not qualifying or apologizing. I want to. Be gracious, but I want you to hear what God says. But with that said, here's what I want to say to you if, if that's a struggle. like Fletcher is not the church that you're a part of today without the essential contribution of the women that are part of this church. like We're not who we are. You just went through a, a, a time of singing and worship, and every week we have wonderful women who come and give their gifts to lead us in worship. How much poorer are we as a church if they don't? They play our instruments every week. How much poorer is your worship experience if they don't? A whole trail of kids just walked over there. The next generation of believers or people who reject the faith are sitting over there. And you know who most of the people over there teaching them, loving them patiently, you know who's taking them over there so that they're not in here crying and tugging on you and like pushing you and then hitting their brothers and sisters around you so that you can listen to the word? Mostly women. You know who leads the discipleship ministries of our church? Mostly women. And that doesn't happen without the valuable contribution. We have had a women's team operating at Fletcher for like eight years. We haven't had six months stringed together where we had a men's team operate and function. We are who we are because of the valuable contributions of both genders, right? Right? For the first time, Micah just told us this in the past couple of weeks. For the first time in the history of microgroups, six years of them, for the first time in the history of microgroups, male participation in microgroups has equaled female participation. Women have led the way in microgroups being pressed into the far reaches of the church. Our primary discipleship delivery system is microgroups and women have led the way. Now, you may take that as a challenge, guys. Good, you should. But I hope as women, you take that as encouragement. We don't exist, not as like giving like lip service to it. We don't exist without the essential contribution you give. There are limited roles that, that women can't take on, but there's a big mission of God that we all have to accomplish together and unite, and, and unite together to accomplish. And that's what we wanna invite everybody into. Um, he gives some reasonings there, Genesis 1. Adam was formed first, the helper fit for him, named her, all of that. Genesis 1, is the, that little statement is meant to say Genesis 1. I'm, I'm sorry, Genesis 2. And then the woman was deceived, and you're like, I knew it was her fault. Genesis 3, this serpent deceived me. He's quoting Eve there to bring in all of Genesis 3. We blew the thing up by reversing the order. How do we put it back together? By honoring The order in a godly, redeemed way. And then the last one, saved through childbearing. I wish I could leave it off, not because I'm scared, but just because time-wise. Two things quickly. She will be saved, singular. Eve will be saved by a one-day child that will come from her line. The seed of a woman, not the seed of a man, which is normal, the seed of a woman will give birth to the Redeemer. Salvation will come through a woman through a woman who bears the Messiah, right? So that's what I think that's talking about. But there is a role that is exclusive for women, childbearing. And the purposes of you being entrusted a life, you are stewards over a life. And there is nothing more valuable that could be placed in your hands than that. What if I were to be given the keys of my office and I was the president? Great. You know what's gonna happen when you mess up? See ya. You know what's gonna happen when you retire? Your name is completely forgotten. You know what's gonna happen if you steward a life to Jesus Christ? You'll walk into glory and then one day God will call you up and meet them in the air. And so do not devalue motherhood to say that's not worth my life. Human beings made in God's image are worth your life. They'll be saved through childbearing eve the redeemer will give birth to a sa- eve will give birth to a savior and it's the same savior that you'll have to embrace if you enter his life it's the same savior that asks have you con- been confronted and convicted of your sin have you turned from your sin and put your faith in jesus christ alone men have you turned and put your faith in jesus christ alone women Will you leave this life covered by the blood of Jesus Christ or will you leave this life and stand before God on your own merits? And how do you think eyes that are described as flames of fire, of holiness, would look at your performance over a lifetime? How do you think he's gonna evaluate it if you stand before him on your own? He'll welcome you through the blood of his son Jesus or he will reject you forever if you stand on your own. The redeemer came through the line of the one. A few practical things, here we go. A few practical things as we wrap up. First, what struggles or distortions do you see in yourself as it relates to biblical manhood and womanhood? What distortions or struggles do you see in yourself? Do you see that you've checked out of your family and you've been passive? Do you see a harsh, critical spirit that's, that's been the way you lead? Have you seen like, man, I do not want any responsibility. I just love my carefree life. It's college after all, I have to be responsible until I'm adult. Men have fought and died in wars far younger than you for most of history. Sorry, what's up? What distortions do you see? Ladies, do you roll your eyes at your husband on a regular basis? Do you find like a nagging spirit do you find that you, you, you like a good I told you so when they blow it? And do you find that they either minimize your role in their decisions or they retreat from making any from that? Like, is that what you want to live in? What, dis- what struggles or distortions do you see in yourself? Right? What struggles? And then I want to ask you like, what's better or worse? What's better or worse, that we unite together and there's hierarchy and roles of of authority and submission. What's better or worse, that we unite together and walk into the purpose of God or we fight for some imaginary position within our family? What's what's a better life to live? What is a, a better life to live then I initiate conversation and communication with my spouse and we have a partnership of communication. We work out our issues together. Is that better or worse a life for you to live in than you being some barking commands guy that is harsh and creates wedges between you and is angry? Like what life do you want to live? One of partnership and communication with growing intimacy or one where you're like, you get things done. And ladies, what's better to live in is, is it better to live in a life where you encourage and affirm the leadership and the good things that you see in your husband that, that help him do better the next time or is it better to get an I told you so in? What life do you want to live in? Because your little choices are what create that. It's not the big ones. It's the little momentary choices and responses that create the kind of life you want to live in or the kind of life you don't. And let me give you a hint. If you don't like how it's going right now, It's a good indication you shouldn't keep doing it. Second, what are some consequences or effects from failed manhood and womanhood in yourself, family, extended family? Where have you seen the damaging effects of things not going the right way? I I grew up in a home without my father present for most of it. My parents were divorced. Many of you probably did as well. Some of you grew up in homes with a manipulative mother who wanted to take power and control and she kind of kept everybody on a leash. What kind of effects did that have? What kind of effects is the way you doing your role now having on yourself, the quality of your marriage, on your, on your, on your kids, on, on the people that see it? Right? And so what kind of consequences and effects, good and bad, have you seen from this topic? Because I bet if you look deeply, you'll see that behind that, there's some people abandoning their roles or fighting against their roles that has created it. Third, What redemptive effects could you see coming from a personal commitment to your biblical manhood or womanhood? What redemptive effects could you envision that God could do in your marriage if you started embracing this? What what redemptive effects could you see in your family, in the church, if we like loved and embraced this? If you started making spirit-empowered changes right now, what kind of effects could you see God writing over a, a series of those? Envision that. The gospel radically orients the way we do family and church. The gospel radically reorients the way we do family and church for his glory to accomplish his purposes. We understand this, we embrace this, and then we imperfectly, under the grace of Jesus, live this. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that, that these words would land on our hearts wherever they need to, and it would disrupt something about us It would call us out of apathy and indifference and passivity. It would call us out of a posture of fighting against each other. It would call us out of uh, some relationships that aren't headed the way that God would have us go. It would call us out of checking out of life and, and shirking responsibilities and into embracing them. God, it would call us to real change. I want to pray for that. I pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.